Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Daily Grind. On today's episode, we are joined by Mr. Errol Dobler. Errol is a former Navy SEAL officer, FBI agent, and graduate of the United States Naval Academy. Today, we talk about leadership and his new upcoming book. Be sure, as always, you have a pen, piece of paper, sit back, and dive deep in today's interview with Mr. Errol Dobler. Enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by Taylor Page. Listen to 2020 everyone out there needs a website. First impressions are everything and you want to ensure that your website gives you a leg up on your competition. Listen, when you deal with Taylor Page web design like I have, what you're going to get is a personalized touch. Someone who not only cares about you, but cares about your brand and your success. Not someone who's just putting together a website, but someone who understands what it takes for a website to actually convert. To be honest, ever since I changed my website, my website has converted way better for me. So if you're thinking about getting started with the website, maybe you have a website right now, but it's not serving you. And I know that there are people out there. Go ahead and visit taylorpage.com right now. Connect with Michelle, reach out, let her know that you came from the daily grind and you will get a special deal on your next website. Again, that is taylor, T-A-I-L-O-R, page.com today. Now let's jump into today's interview with Errol. Well, Errol Dobler, welcome to the Daily Grind, my friend. How are you? I am excellent, Colin. How are you doing? I appreciate you having me on. I'm excited to be here. Appreciation's all on my end. I appreciate you being here. (laughs) Um, Errol, for uh, for some people listening, kind of being first introduced to you today, um, just kind of in your own words, if you don't mind explaining a little bit more as to who you are and what it is that you do. Yeah, well, my name is Errol Dobler. I am the founder of my leadership consulting firm, Leader 193. And the 193 uh, pays homage to my Navy SEAL Hell Week training class. So I was formerly a Navy SEAL. Um, I'm originally from New York. I went to the Navy, uh, United States Naval Academy. Uh, I was a ship driver uh, before I was a Navy SEAL. Um, I, uh, I was injured uh, on deployment during my SEAL time, and I spent a few years in the private sector licking my wounds, and then after 9-11 happened, kind of felt the call to get back to duty and got myself medically cleared, spent 13 years in the FBI, um, working counterterrorism operations globally, and uh, then I decided it was time for a change out of some frustration and leadership, and and then I decided to open up my own shop where I have... uh, been working with teams and executives pretty much all around the world for the uh, know, last four years or so. And now here I am with you on the Daily I Grind. <laughs> I love it. So The culmination let's... of all of my experience, finally. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Here we are. Well, let, let's rewind the clocks a little bit. I'm kind of interested in you know, going back to, to early days. When did you decide that you wanted to go into the Navy? Um, so it's interesting. I'm a little older. Colin. And when I was growing up, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. And so it was interesting the way I kind of came across this. My next door neighbor went to the United States Naval Academy and he just happened for some reason to bring over a book about the Naval Academy, kind of one of their, you know, guides. Hey, here's the Naval Academy. Yeah. And there is a small section, literally a paragraph on this thing called Navy SEALs. And it was just a picture of a bunch of guys. They didn't have anything cool on. They had on their swim trunks. And it just and I can't remember what the description was. And I couldn't have been older than about sixth or seventh grade. And that just stuck with me. And I'm like, who are these guys? You know, and then you, you go to the library and you have to go to the card catalog. And there wasn't a whole bunch of stuff written. And I found one article. And so I was young and that kind of, you know, you kind of forget about that. Now I grew up at the, on the water, so that's probably why it spoke to me, right? I was in the ocean every day. So, you know, that was being on the water was kind of part of who I was. Fast forward to, um, college time, you know, I was an athlete and I was recruited for lacrosse and, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't put a lot of thought into it. You know, it just, it was weird. And my coach said to me one day, you know, where do you want to go to school? And I was like, the Naval Academy. And I don't know what made that come out of my mouth. (laughs) And I I know, you know, in hindsight, it was that was still in the back of my mind, this Navy SEAL thing. So, you know, 
I got in touch with the coach. They came and watched me play. They recruited me, and the rest is history. And that's that's how I that's how my journey started. Just somebody dropping off a book, and this thing about Navy SEALs sitting in there, one paragraph, and then it it, it spoke to me, and that was it. Wow. So so I mean, for us who maybe aren't educated in what it takes to become a Navy SEAL, educate us a little bit, because I mean, there's a lot of people out there who. Obviously, when you hear Navy SEALs, we think of the baddest men on the planet, you know, like, <laughs> like what's the process in terms of, say, for you, um, what was the process from you kind of going into the Naval Academy and eventually yeah. becoming a Navy SEAL? Yeah, so you don't, the Naval Academy is, you know, it's a, it's a four-year uh, educational institution, right? And, and you, mm-hmm. but you are required to serve five years in the service minimum after you graduate. And based on your class rank, and some other factors. There's a thing called service selection night, and you you pick the service that you go to. Okay. Um, I was a inefficient student at best, so my <laughs> you know my class rank didn't put me in a position to get one of the very few Navy SEAL billets. So that's how I ended up on a ship first, which would turned out to be like most things that don't go your way if you respond properly to them. Turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, but then it was an arduous process to laterally transfer, they call it, to the Navy SEALs. Once I was, I got that billet, you know, now, now you're just going through what everybody else goes through. Uh, Navy SEAL training is six months long. It's generally regarded wow. as the hardest military training in the world. There's a 70% attrition rate. Um, for our part, we, you know, the day I showed up and they said, okay, this is class 193, there was 200 of us. By the time we finished Hell Week, uh, which I think is at the time, and they may have changed a little bit, was at the end of the fourth week, fourth or fifth week, whatever it is. But it's early. Hell Week is early. Um, we were down to ten. Oh my and God! Really? Now, yeah. Now that that's that's those are the kind of classes that get it to the seventy percent because some classes do a little better uh, if they're in the summer. Our class was in the winter. But then you just go about the business, you know. So that Hell Week thing is that's the hardest week of the hardest training. And that the whole first phase, it's broken down into three phases is, is to make you quit. Mm -hmm. And that's really, there's no bones about it. We're going to make you do this thing to make you quit. And there's a method behind the madness. Um, they're always still kind of trying to make you quit. But once you get past that first phase, everybody's pretty established, but it, it gets harder and harder as it goes. So that's it. Once you, once you graduate there, they assign you to a team and then you go about your business. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Wow. So, you know, you kind of spoke about how it's just about them wanting you to, to quit. Is there people who don't quit, but maybe an instructor or someone looks at them and it's like they're not cut out for this and, and they get dismissed? Like, does that happen? Very rarely. Um, Got you. I've seen that happen once where somebody, <laughs> where somebody wasn't quitting and they said, look, you, you just have to go. Um, but other than that, it generally worked. The process generally works itself out. If if they because they 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 smell the instructors smell blood, right? If something's going wrong, yeah, they'll start to congregate, and um and they'll get you if if you if if it's in you to quit, they'll find it. And if it's not, you will generally write whatever wrong it is that you're doing that's attracting the attention. Um, so yeah, I've only seen it on one occasion where they just told somebody, and I'll, I'll never forget it because they were right. <laughs> he yeah. was, he was just stubborn. He wasn't going to quit, but that poor guy couldn't get anything right. Um, so yeah, that was, that was it. So that doesn't happen very often though. Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, I've seen some videos on hell week. Uh, there's YouTube, there's, there's some clips on what people go through. You know, people talk about, you know, when you go through hard times, maybe something in your life or something in your mindset shifts. Was there something that kind of stood out to you in Hell Week, whether it was a moment or whether it was just something after where you felt like something changed or you felt like a a mentality or something inside of you changed? Yeah. So the answer is no. And not because it doesn't have that kind of effect on you. Mm -hmm. It's in in order to survive. Um, but they, they call it BUDS training, basic underwater demolition seals. When I say BUDS, that's the Navy SEAL training. Um, if you don't have that mindset going in, you're just simply not going to make it. You know, the, everybody, everybody there can do 20 pull-ups and a hundred push-ups at a time and, and run a gazillion miles and swim. Everybody can do that. 
the differentiator is is the mindset. Um, and and I can tell you without exception, Colin, that every time somebody said or expressed some doubt on whether or not they could make it, whether it was in Hell Week or just in any part of the training, anytime somebody said, "Man, I don't know if I can do this," they invariably quit at some point. There was mm-hmm. never somebody who said that once and then got over it. Um, so for me, and I can just I can give you an example at the end of Hell Week. Uh, you know, so it starts Sunday night, it ends Friday afternoon. Okay. And you're running around the whole week with these big boats on your head. Um, and, you know, you have a hat on, so your head's all scalped up and it hurts. And I had incredible shin splints. Okay. So they're marching us around the area where when you quit, you know, there's the infamous bell, right? Ding, ding, ding. And yep. now you've quit. And when you quit, you put your helmet down. Uh, so we had, you know, there was over a hundred helmets. It was unbelievable. And so they, they kind of walk you by that to you know, have a proud moment like you made it. And I remember thinking, I think my leg is going to snap in half because wow. that's how bad my shin splints were. I, I literally was like, my leg might snap in half. This is how bad it hurts. But then I also remember thinking, well, I don't care because I'm not quitting. That's for mm. sure. If it snaps in half, it snaps in half. And, and I trust them to take care of me. And that's the mindset of everybody who makes it going through. Um, so there has to be that kind of, that kind of, uh, one mind direction, if you will, going into it. And then you get a lot coming out of it. You, you, you are able to push yourself to heights that you never thought you could, but only because you went in with the proper mindset. So yeah, you come out of it a different person, but you've got to go into it with something a little unique as well. If that makes sense. I hope that answers yeah, your question. No, a hundred percent. Um, b- before I move on to what I want to talk about next here, here's something that maybe, maybe you've been asked this before, maybe you haven't, but I just pure curiosity, like after, after the seal training is over, after the six months is over, do you guys get some time for yourselves? Like, is there a big party you throw? Yeah. Like, what's that like? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> yeah. You <know>. Okay. <laughs> There's now there's, there may not necessarily be a lot of time for ourselves, but there's a big party. I like it. <laughs> so they generally move you along pretty quickly onto the next thing though. Um, yeah. but yeah, you, you, you certainly take time to, to celebrate. That's for sure. No doubt. So, you know, as, as I'm preparing for this interview with you today, Errol, obviously I'm reading a lot about you and there are moments where, you know, obviously with anything, people make a lot of mistakes and I think you're no different. I read that you almost were, came to the brink of expulsion numerous times. Can you kind of walk through that a little bit? Yeah. You know, and th- and, I, and I appreciate that because it's, it's, it's kind of what I base. So I developed this leadership process, art and science of leadership, right? And it's, it's based on very specific stuff. And, you know, my resume reads very nicely, right? And that's, that's great. Naval yep. Academy graduate, and, you know, surface warfare officer, Navy SEAL, FBI agent, private sector guy, you know, making money. And then now my own my own business that's doing well and, and, and instructing leaders and, and, and advising leaders around the world. That's that's all well and good. But what I make sure that people know when I go through my process and maybe we'll hit on some of the elements of it. Yeah, it's born on a lot of the successes, but mostly the failures and the reflection on why did I do what I did? How did I manage to, to achieve some modicum of success and then yet self-sabotage myself on a regular basis? How does that happen? And so, you know, I was a, like I said, I was a, a lazy student at the Naval Academy. You know, and it's a weird kind of thing to do. So, you know, I was, I got in trouble a lot for a lot of nonconformist behavior. Well, why would you go into the Navy to begin with? Well, who, who knows, right? Because I wanted to be a SEAL, and that's kind of yeah. a nonconformist group, I guess. So it was serendipitous. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't work as hard as I could studying for some reason. Now, I, you know, in hindsight, I know what those reasons were. So I went to a couple of academic boards, and that's, that's no easy thing. I survived two, and that's lucky. And the only reason you survive those things is if somebody comes forward and says, he's worth saving. He's going to be a leader. He just needs to get his stuff together in the classroom, right? And, you know, the, the big thing about the Naval Academy, you know, you're, you're in for the week, and sometimes you don't even get to go home, 
get go out on the weekends. So you jump the wall, right? You, I got to get out. I got to go have a little fun and I've got to be a little rebellious. And so, you know, I would do those things. And, and so would some other people. But, you know, I got caught several times. And I was what's called the head restrictee uh, on numerous occasions. So the people who get caught doing something bad, they get put on restriction, they get the demerits, and, you know, you got to sit around on the weekends. And, um, and what's, what's ironic about it is that the person with the most demerits, which was me twice, gets to be in charge of all the other people who are breaking the rules. So the biggest rule maker gets to be in charge of the rules. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a little backwards, the system. But the point I'm making is, um, you know, a couple of times, you know, I had to go before the performance review board. Why are you doing these things, Aaron? Why do you keep doing this? And yet I would get saved because somebody would come forward and say, he's worth saving. He's a, he's a good leader. He's an excellent leader. He just needs to get his stuff together. And, and that kind of stuff continued to happen in my Navy career. And when I got injured and I left the Navy, um, it was, it was in a heap of, um, let me, it was with my tail between my legs. Yeah. Cause it's not how I left. And I was in a, you know, through poor decision, I got myself into a poor marriage back then. And then as young couples do, we find ways to hurt each other. And I was just as bad as she was, but she knew myself, my weak spot easily. Call the Navy SEAL command and make complaints about me. And this happened after I'd been injured and was home on medical leave. And then I had to answer for these accusations. And, you know, it was just awful. And then I got so embarrassed that I stayed away from the command. You know, I would spend time at the hospital rehabilitating and then I would just stay there. And they got mm -hmm. angry with that. And my point that I'm making is that, when you leave something you love, and I loved being a SEAL more than anything in the world, and I, was, I had planned on staying in my entire career, when you leave on that kind of note, you know, you have to, you have to sit back and reflect. And that's what I did. Yeah. I said, how in the world did it come to this? How could I achieve so many great things but then have so much to be ashamed of, you know, and, and really stunt myself? So you know, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. When I did that, you know, I started to, you know, I started to have those uh, hiccups less and less. And then when I started my own company, you know, I had to look, this is a leadership company. What do I believe? And that's where I was all really able to put it to a process um, and really understand it. So that's, you know, again, I kind of rambled on about that, but that's, that's it. My, my stuff is based on some very, very unique screw ups along the way. Yeah. And I like to highlight them because you know, I don't want people to look the, at a resume and go, well, man, he's just perfect. Look at him. Isn't he something yeah. special? Well, yeah, but listen to this, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's really indignant of a lot of high achievers. You know, you're talking in the military. I played sports and I know a lot of other people who did as well. And it's difficult when, you know, obviously you reach kind of the pinnacle of what you wanted to reach in, in your yeah. life and in your professional career. And when that's kind of, taken away from you in a sense because you did get injured and you have to now do something different. It's hard to think of doing anything different because your whole life was geared towards one thing. Yeah. And, and, and I know you can appreciate that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you know, here's the thing I, <laughs> I start, so I didn't know what I was going to do. Right. Yeah. So I have, I have one of my very good friends in the world is a great salesman. And, and so I was, you know, just hanging out with him. Um, I was staying with him for a little while and he goes, just Errol, you, you need to get into sales. And the reason is, you know, A, you can make some money, and B, they don't mess with you too much. You get to kind of do your own thing, and you need that. And I said, well, you're right. Where do I start? And he goes, well, so go start selling copiers. Okay. And I was, and this is now, I don't even know, do they even have copiers anymore? I think they do, right? But <laughs> sounds I, like the office. You're going to work right, at the office. <laughs> that's right. I'm, right. Copiers. <laughs> yeah. 40 pages a minute, 80 pages a minute, right? The whole thing. <laughs> Um, and I said, okay, why? He goes, well, first of all, it's the Vietnam of sales. So if you can sell a copier, you can sell anything. And he goes, really more importantly, they'll take anybody. So that was funny. So I, I started selling copiers. And what I, what I realized was I don't care about copiers. I never have cared about copiers, but I loved that job. Right. And this was kind of part of my reflection. Why did I love that job so much? 
selling copiers because I couldn't have cared less about it. Mm-hmm. And it was because the environment I was in was so predictable. I worked for a guy who was a great leader and he was very clear. It was, it was just a very beautiful transition for me into one great leadership environment to another. And I got to see, I started to, you know, it started to crystallize to be like, wow, environment is what matters, not necessarily the job. And, um, so it was a nice transition for me. I enjoyed it. I had figured out, you know, okay, I'm going to move on. This is my new world. And, uh, you know, then nine 11 happened and, you know, yeah. but yeah, so that was, it was hard, but I got really, really lucky and fortunate because I got to see a great leader in something other than the SEAL teams, which, you know, which I loved. And I was like, wow, they, they exist. They exist outside the SEAL teams and I could enjoy doing a job like selling copiers because I have a great leader who creates a great environment. So, you know, that was kind of a little bit of the journey and the transition. Got you. So then, you know, obviously you eventually after nine 11, you start to go and you're, you're in the FBI now. What, what was, first of all, what was it like? Obviously like you're in Manhattan during nine 11. What, what changed? Why the FBI? Why'd you make that choice? Yeah. So the, I wasn't in the FBI at nine 11, right? I was, I was, mm-hmm. I was in Manhattan. Um, I was, um, <laughs> it's so funny. So the, I, I think back, it's not, 9-11 is obviously not funny, but I think back on the story yeah. that had me there. And we were in a hotel room and I had just gotten a new boss. And me and him were struggling a little bit to, you know, find our footing. And I had gotten, you know, a big deal with a big company and we were going to go close the deal in Manhattan. And he was with me and he was starting to warm up to me a little bit. You know, I was explaining how we got here and we were in the hotel room. And I went out and I got a cup of coffee, you know, Starbucks. And I, somebody yell, runs in and, and yells, a helicopter just crashed into the world, tra- uh, you know, the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm. And I got out and I looked and I could see the smoke. And I was like, huh, you know, and that's it. You just get like, oh, that's really awful. That's sad. Yeah. That, you know, but now I've got, I've got work to do. We get back in and we're watching the TV and now we see what's happening. And I was probably three blocks away from where the, you know, the, the smoldering stopped after the towers fell. Got you. And, um, but the, 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 the airplanes hit and this just, it, it's kind of, I'm, I'm partly ashamed of my reaction initially, but it's also, it's also goes to some mindset. I remember calling, I was Con Edison and that's the, uh, the, um, energy company in Manhattan. Yep. I remember calling and saying, I'm sure you guys know that the planes just hit into the World Trade Center. I just want to confirm that our appointment will be postponed. <laughs> they were like, yeah, oh, we got some yeah. other things to do. Anyway, <laughs> once that happened, uh, you know, my sister lived in, in Manhattan and, and I called her. You know, I said, you know, where are you? How are you? She said, I'm fine. I'm home. She goes, but Tony went back to work to collect his final paycheck. And Tony was uh, her husband and he worked, he had left Cantor Fitzgerald. And those of you who remember, you know, that whole day, uh, that's the company that lost like 90% of the people. He had resigned from a position there the day before and they were going to send him his check. And he decided to go in and just pick it up in person and say goodbye to some folks. And that was, you know, I spent the day, you know, I went, I found my sister and I just remember the towers had fallen and, and she said, what do you think? And I said, well, what do you mean? Cause I didn't want to answer a question that I wasn't being asked. Right. You yeah. Know, careful. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, do you think, do you think he made it? And I said, I don't, I said, that doesn't mean let's, let's not go try to find him. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, when you hear the stories about being at the hospital and the pictures up, um, and the best of, um, human nature. Yeah. Gosh, I haven't talked about this forever. The, yeah. the, the best of human nature were the people at those hospitals. And they just, there were thousands, literally thousands of people coming in saying, I have a picture. Can you put it up? Can you look and see if this person has been admitted? They walked us through every protocol. And, um, it was quite something in any event. Um, 
I don't know that being in Manhattan or just the event itself, but I just said to myself that day, I have to get back in this fight and I don't know how I'm going to do it. Um, and I did, you know, I had to go get a medical discharge or a medical clearance. Mm -hmm. Um, the CIA and the FBI seemed like the most obvious places. I went, I went with the FBI and, you know, me getting my medical clearance is a whole nother story. I could tell you because it was pretty funny. But that said, there I was. That's what kind of drove me. And sorry for getting a little emotional there. I, I, I hadn't expected that. Oh, don't be sorry at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. and then, you know, so at the, uh, at the FBI Academy, you know, you make requests where to go. And I, you know, I was like, New York City, man. I, that's where I want to go. And I want to work this terrorism thing. It was all brand new. And, and that's where I was. So I ended up working international terrorism in Manhattan starting in 2003. Wow. So first of all, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, it was incredibly powerful and, you know, bravo to you. And, you know, for you, obviously now you, you're in the FBI and, and you did leave and you, and you left yeah. because of some leadership um, issues that, yeah. that you had. And, and I'll let you speak to that. But what were some of the main differences between maybe your time spent in the Naval Academy and as a Navy SEAL, as opposed to being in the FBI. Yeah. The, here's the main difference, right? And the, it's two very exciting jobs being a Navy SEAL. Uh, and even in the nineties, right? There wasn't a lot of work to go around for Navy SEALs in the nineties. You know, mm -hmm. once, once nine 11 happened, there's too much work. Um, but you know, we, we still, we, we were able to see some, some work. Um, and you're always training. Uh, but here is the major difference. Um, the expectation of good leadership and or great leadership was the expectation of the SEAL teams. And poor leaders were the outliers. Like a poor leader stuck out like a sore thumb. Unfortunately, in the FBI, it was the opposite. Now, let me caveat that by saying I'm not taking gratuitous shots at the FBI because some of the best leaders I've ever met have been in the FBI, mm -hmm. but the overall leadership culture there and the expectation is of poor leadership. And when you see a great leader, you're like, wow, thank God. How did I get so lucky? And, and that's what I kind of talked about environment. And when we talk about why people stay at jobs and why people love jobs and I talk to leaders all the time and they get upset that people don't love their job more. And I'm like, man, what, why do you care if they love their job? They may need this job because they may need to make a living. And that, that trumps them loving their job. But what you can do as a leader is to create an environment people love. And I tell them, I say, and I can speak to you with firsthand experience. They will not stay even at a job they love if the environment's bad. Yeah. And that's really the difference. That's so in, in the end, I loved being a special agent for the FBI. I loved it. I loved working cases. I loved everything about it. The environment is what drove me away and the poor leadership and the expectation of poor leadership. Um, and that, that's the main difference. Interesting. So when did you kind of get the, the idea of, of, of jumping out and doing something yourself? Was it while you were working in the FBI? Yeah, the it's, um, yes. So it was the culmination of things that I had begun to see and, you know, uh, bad, bad culture, bad behaviors. And, you know, I had some, I had some people in, in positions of authority, you know, kind of point their lasers at me as, as it were. And look, I, and I, I'm very, very open and honest about the, the trouble that's found me along the way in my life. I've earned it, right? You know, so, um, you know, I never look at somebody and say, oh, well, I got in trouble at the Naval Academy or while well, I was in the Navy because somebody else. No, I earned all that, that, uh, that trouble that found me. This, this trouble I didn't earn. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it was... It was unfair and it was sad uh, because I was just trying to do my job and I had a difference of opinion with some people and I, I made my plans. I said, here's what we're doing. My, this particular operation was seeing a lot of success and it would continue to get um, backdoored at every turn. 
and uh, it was just too much for me. And then they, you know, this this couple of individuals tried to have me removed from the office and move my family to a different field office, and I fought it. You know, I had people telling me, "Just go with it, Errol, because you're never going to beat them." And I said, "Look, if I stand for nothing, I stand for this, mm-hmm. right? You, you're going to try to uproot my family because." You have the ability to do it. I'll never do it. I will. I won't stand for it. So I fought. I won, quote unquote, won because nobody wins those things. But you know, some some objective people got to people in an objective position got to look at what was happening, and say, Errol, you're right. You haven't done anything wrong. You can stay. And at that moment, that's when I said, Okay, now I'm leaving. Um, so that was it. It was kind of a culmination, and I probably would have stayed and endured some of the things I disagree with if if their guns hadn't been pointed at me eventually. And that was it. You know, it was really just a matter of saying I can stay here and endure this, endure a leadership that I don't agree with, or I can put my money where my mouth is, go do something on my own, be my own boss, do it my way, and succeed or fail on my own. And share the lessons of leadership that I've learned along the way, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and that's the decision I made. And it wasn't an easy decision. I've mm-hmm. got three kids, right? <laughs> and three yep. dogs. And I have a family to, to support. And uh, my wife was with me on it. And she said, you know, I believe in us. And, and that's what we did. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Wow. So now I want to kind of talk about, I mean, you brought it up a couple of times. I want to kind of get into your, to your leadership process. Cause you know, obviously right now, I think there's a, a lot of people are, whether they're business owners or not, they're looking to become better leaders, whether it's in their homes or in their businesses. So walk through, uh, walk through your leadership process a little bit and how that can help people. Uh, thanks. I will. It'd be, and the, what I found in this self-reflection, right? So you go back, right? What did I do right? What did I do wrong? Why did I do it right? Why did I do it wrong? And what I saw was there was a series of elements that continued to come up, right? There was a consistency. And if you did these things right, you had a chance of not making some mistakes. There, and I said, my God, there's a process. These are things that always come up. So, you know, my, my leadership process, it's five elements, okay? And I don't tell anybody to do anything. Right? Mm-hmm. But I say the first element, first and foremost, and, and again, it's a process, so you can't skip steps. Emotional awareness and recognition. That's it. That drives everything. By definition, emotions drive our actions. And if you are judged by nothing as a leader, you are judged by what you do and what you say. And if you're not aware that those things you do and say are driven by some form of emotion, then you're just acting and speaking randomly. And you're leaving the, the success of that action or your words up to choice. <clears throat> so to be in control of what we do and what we say, we have to understand the underlying emotion that drives it. That's everything. If I had had somebody tell me that as a young man, I would have avoided a lot of problems. The next thing is, since emotions drive our actions, well, actions by definition are the things that make up our culture. Culture is not the labels we put on things. We have a culture of excellence. Great. I'm not saying don't say things like that. Mm-hmm. My next question is to you, what do you do that creates excellence? There will be a series of things you do. So for leaders, for our own individual leadership, for leadership of our families, for leadership of our organizations and teams, we have to start with an awareness of our emotions and our culture, okay? Because only then can we see things for the way they truly are and then begin to make positive adjustments. So that's it. That's the, those are the first two parts of the, of the process, cultural awareness and emotional awareness and recognition. Once we have that, then we need to decide based on what we've seen, what are our behaviors that we want. Now, behaviors are not industry-specific things, okay? So, for example, you were a golfer. Your behavior was not uh, to make sure you turned your hips out, right, uh, too, too soon or too early, Right. That's a that's an industry specific behavior. Right. That's a technique. That's a best practice. Right. Your behavior was along the lines of the discipline you bought, the mindfulness that you bought to what you did. That's a behavior. Mm -hmm. That's you apply that anywhere. All right. So we talk about behaviors. If you didn't change the way you made market or sold your widget, but you behaved in these ways, would you get better? Okay. And again, there's you know, if you're listening to this, you might be like, I think I get it. 
you know, I, I spend months <laughs> with people on this, but this is the process, right? Now, next element. In the, so what we've done now, we've established a great groundwork of emotional awareness and recognition because emotions drive our actions. Actions make up our culture. Now we're aware of what it is and we want to make the necessary changes so we decide upon behaviors. Okay, but in the end, leaders are judged by their results. Mission accomplishment. So what you need is a planning process. Okay, all I've done is taken the planning process we used in the SEAL teams, modified it, simplified it, watered it down a little bit, to make it applicable for everybody and say, if you follow the elements of this process and anything you're doing in life, you will find success, right? And it, it's, it's born out every time. Uh, combat is the ultimate expression of consequence, right? Mm-hmm. So what did we do in combat? If you didn't do things right, you suffered one of three uh, results, mission failure, injury, or death, all unacceptable. If you follow the elements of this planning process in combat, you will likely succeed, okay? Yeah. If you don't, if you miss one of the elements, your chances of failure go up exponentially, okay? That's been born of blood. That's not Errol Dobler speaking. That, that's a fact, mm-hmm. okay? The beauty of it is it's applicable everywhere, okay? So I introduced the planning process. And then we talk about, okay, we do these common sense things, Right, you follow you, you, you have this awareness around what you do and how you feel, and then you decide upon behaviors and you plan. And why will people resist this obvious process? Right, so we talk about understanding why people resist the obvious. Now, when I say the process, art, and science of leadership, the process is the process, you have to follow these elements. Inside each one of those elements, there's going to be an art to it. So, in other words, Colin, if you and I are talking. Right? We're talking about emotional awareness and recognition. Your struggles around certain emotions are going to be different than somebody else's. And that's going to, be, that's going to require a discussion between you and me to decide what are the emotions that are hanging you up? Which ones have you not even thought about? Okay, now we get to focus. There's an art in that. And there's an art to the culture part, right? What's good for your culture is not good for somebody else's. And behaviors, they have to be in context, right? So I could tell you, Colin, you need to act with courage or you need to prioritize, right? You might say, well, what are you talking about? That, yeah. I prioritize already. So unless we've gone through the art of establishing which guidelines for behavior are right for you, they're meaningless, right? So that's yep. the art to it. And the final part is the science. When we talk about emotions to actions, then deciding on actions, making a plan and understanding resistance, I'm, uh, I'm big into behavioral change and what the brain does when it changes. And it turns out, I found, that the brain changes in the same process that my leadership process looks like. The brain changes starting with an awareness of emotions because we have between 60 and 70,000 thoughts per day, the research tells us. 80% of those thoughts are the same as the ones from yesterday. 70% of those thoughts are thoughts driven by the emotions of stress. Okay? So emotions are what's driving our behavior. And then until we realize that, right, until we have cultural awareness, we can't start to think differently, see guidelines for behavior, because we're going to do something new to give us a new, um, uh, a new experience, to give us a new emotion, and then to act on that further creates change in the brain to rewire itself. And that's the planning process. And so as leaders, when we understand there's a resistance, I tell leaders, when you put this new stuff in place and people don't do it, understand they have a neurochemical addiction to emotions and behaviors that you're trying to change. So don't take it personally when they ignore you initially. It's just a process. That's kind of the science part. Um, As you can tell, I get really passionate about it. Yeah. I could talk about it all day, but that's the, that's the crux of it. I hope that makes sense. A hundred percent it does. I mean, before we move forward, if there's like a spot that people can go to like dive in further to this, is there a resource you have or, or somewhere you can, you can guide people to? Yes, there is. It's funny you should mention that. There's a new groundbreaking book available oh, for pre-order today. Nice. The Process Art and Science of Leadership. How to Inspire Confidence and Clarity in Combat in the Boardroom and the Kitchen Table. Yes, and I say that in jest, but it's true. I just The book is coming out. Um, it's available for pre-order now. I think our official launch will be July 1st, and it breaks it down. Now, 
if you go to uh, my website, leader193.com, um, you know, I have my, uh, you know, all my philosophies there and, yep. you know, how do you get into coaching and group coaching and, you know, uh, yeah, uh, leadership retreats and all that type of stuff. But I imply all of this, employ all of it there um, to include, and, you know, the Wim Hof method of cold exposure as a tool to practice it. So we can talk about that a little bit if you'd like, but does that, I mean, did I, did I, did I direct yeah. you to the right place? This new you groundbreaking book. <laughs> that's it. I love it. And that's uh, the book. Can it be found? Is that on your website or are we looking yeah. at Amazon for that? Yeah. You can, you can either go to Amazon or you can go to my website okay, and then there'll be a link uh, to Amazon, you know, send you right there. So either. Awesome. Place. I'll share that if you're listening now, I'll share that in the show notes. So go to the show notes section of the page, everyone. Um, you brought it up. I, I would kind of wanted to get in this with you too, the kind of cold exposure and breathing, the Wim Hof method. Talk about how you were introduced to that and kind of how that's impacted your life. I will because it's 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 awesome, right? And so, you know, if you'll indulge me, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell you how I got introduced to me Great. and how I just started to put it into my leadership practice. So I was um, putting together a weekend retreat for a client and the CEO called me and he said, I want you to employ uh, the Wim Hof method uh, in your retreat if you could and please call this guy and his name was Brandon Powell. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll give him a call. So I was like, what is the, by the way, what's the Wim Hof method? I had no idea, never even heard of it. Yeah. He goes, just call call Brandon and, and just work it into the weekend if you would. So I said, of course. So I looked Brandon up. Brandon is a, he's a jujitsu instructor by trade, um, but he has the Wim Hof, he has a video on his site uh, describing the Wim Hof method. And it starts with him in an ice bath. And I immediately was like, what is that? Right. <laughs> so again, you know, just the, the whole, my whole background, you know, water, cold, that's what we do in the SEAL teams and me growing up. And it just spoke to me immediately. So I, I called Brandon. We worked out the logistics of the uh, weekend, and I said, "Man, you've got to. What is this thing?" Yeah. Brandon's such a great guy. He spent an hour on the phone with me explaining, you know, the cold exposure, the breathing, the mindset, what it does. As soon as we hung up, I got on the Wim Hof site. Um, one of the prerequisites to getting your instructor certification is to go through the ten-week online course. I signed up right then. Um, about five weeks later, we had our, you know, the the leadership event, Brandon was there for an afternoon, brought us through the whole thing, validated everything I felt about it. Uh, and then there's two more stages to getting your certification. So I got my Wim Hof certification. Um, so in short, breathing, mindset, uh, and cold exposure. It does a million things for you physiologically, right? When we talk, especially in these days of pandemic, the most important thing it does for you is it strengthens your immune system. Now, everything Wim Hof has done has been backed by science. So if I'm going to say something like it strengthens your immune system, you know, I'm not some cheap salesman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> everything is backed by science as to why it does that. But really in short, when you do the Wim Hof uh, method breathing technique, it's a very deep, aggressive breathing technique, right? It takes work. It's hard. Um, but you, what the science has found is, you're literally hacking into your autonomic nervous system, which is where your innate immune system lives. And what you're doing is you're exercising it by going from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic. And that's a, a, it's a natural occurrence after about 20 minutes when you do the breathing. And when you strengthen that, your immune system starts to work properly. It doesn't overreact. Okay, And I, I heard some stat about why people uh, die in hospitals from disease and half the time, not half the time, it's way more than half the time. It's because of an overactive immune system and an immune system overreacts because it's not exercised properly. It doesn't know how to act. Right. So that's what the breathing does. Okay. As it relates to, to again, strengthen immune system and which is what we need in these times. Same thing with cold exposure, right? When you go into the cold, what's happening is you are activating your sympathetic nervous system, right? That fight or flight, you go, right? You get that deep breath yep. in. Oh my God, I got to get out of here, right? That's, <laughs> that's your body telling you fight or flight, get out of there. But when you step it, when you're into that um, ice bath or that cold shower and you are able to focus your mind on one thing, because we know that when we focus our mind on one thing, it starts to relax. 
then your body moves from shivering, right, which is a natural response, to calm. And when it moves to calm, now your body starts to burn heat uh, by burning fat. Right? It's a metabolic response, and you've now just gone to the sympathetic or the parasympathetic, the rest and digest. You've hacked your autonomic nervous system. You've exercised it and increased the strength of your immune system, among other things. Right? It makes it makes perfect sense, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. So that's that's the very applicable to today's coronavirus, COVID-19, whatever we're calling this thing. Um, that's why the Wim Hof method is so important. Now, interesting. For my purposes, as I looked in, you know, as I practice it and I practice it every day, I started to realize as I looked at my leadership process, I was like, holy cow, what a great intellectual tool this is to practice those elements of my leadership process. So, what do I mean by that? Well, Colin, I can promise you one thing. When you step into an ice bath, you're going to have an emotion, right? So, <laughs> I have been in one, and yes. That's right. Emotional <laughs> yes. awareness and recognition, that's a skill, right? So if I'm saying it's so important to leadership, well, how do you practice that? Get into an ice bath every day and have your intention getting into the ice bath be, let me recognize my emotion. Now you're creating a habit, okay? And now you've created that habit. Same thing, intention for cultural awareness and recognition. You're going to do something before, before, during, or after the ice bath. Be aware of what it is. Are you walking in circles before you get in? See, procrastinating. When you get in, are you yelling and screaming? You know, obscenities, OS, OF, get me out of here, right? Yeah. That's what you do. That's your culture, for better or for worse. 100%. Right? That's it. And you're going to find parallels in your real life. Okay, but now you're aware of it. So that's how you practice cultural awareness and recognition. Then you decide, how do I want to behave? What is my behavior? I want to be a professional. I want to be calm. Right now, you're giving intention to acting the way you want to act, a behavior. So again, and it goes on and on. So now I use this, uh, the Wim Hof method, in my leadership uh, practice to literally practice these leadership elements. It's it's foolproof. The people who uh, embrace it, they're like, wow. I can't believe it. I really did see things in myself stepping into the ice bath that I didn't realize I did in every other aspect of my life. Now I know it, right? Because you have awareness. So yeah. again, I, I, I can go on and on, but I will pause in case you have a question <laughs> on your podcast. <laughs> no, this is all great. I mean, my one question is, you know, for people who don't like, is the suggestion to, if someone wanted to practice this, do you need an ice bath or, or is there a different way to do it when you're at home? Yeah, there, you don't. Um, so cold is cold, right? And here's cold the, shower. Cold shower is perfect. Yeah. And it and you know what else is okay? If you want to start by putting your hands in a bucket of water, right? It's it's okay. The good news is about cold is your body's a closed system. So if you even started with your hands in a in a bucket of cold water, you know it. The the physiological benefits are going to circulate, right? Um, so no, you don't have to jump into a 32 degree ice bath out of the <laughs> gate. You're, the the rule of thumb is this: if you're going to step into a cold shower, okay, if you don't have to wholly focus on everything in your being to catch your breath and calm, not grit your way through it, right? Not any fool can do that. Yep. We're trying to get calm in there, okay? If you can get calm without a lot of effort, it's not cold enough. Right, you got to make it colder. That's that's the only rule of thumb that wow. you need to go through. So cold is cold. When it's cold outside, go outside with your shirt off for a little while. You know, try to get that calm as best you can. Good job. When it's time to come in, it's time to come in. Um, so yeah, don't don't restrict yourself to just an ice bath. Love it. And uh, for people who want to learn that method, where's the best place people can go? So. Um, Obviously, the Wim Hof site, right? WimHofMethod.com is a great place to go. I explain it, obviously, on my site, Leader193.com. Great. Full explanation there. Uh, so it, it's become popular enough. It's easy to find out. But again, if you even start it on my site, I will, I will eventually direct you to the Wim Hof site, right? There's a great um, Vice documentary on Wim Hof. Um, I think it's called Becoming the Iceman. It's about 40 minutes. Awesome. Right. I, I encourage everybody to go um, 
take a look at that. Beautiful. Well, again, I'll share all these links in the show notes section, everyone. Um, Errol, the way we end the show here on The Daily Grind is we're going to give you the floor and you have the chance today to to share a thought of the day. So it could be something you're thinking about or just a message you really want to hone in for with the audience today. Yeah. I, all right. I appreciate that. I think I think let's make it applicable to what's happening today. Great. Right. Um, there's no there's no discussion happening today. There's a lot of talk and there's no discussion. And my premise behind that is um, it goes with my process: emotional awareness and recognition. People are not aware of their emotions, or more importantly, they're not aware of how they're acting on their emotions, okay? They are acting truly with emotion. And when people act only with emotion, um, we have a hard time having a real discussion. So what I would do if I had you know, this final thought is to, is to have people recognize that. Recognize that in themselves, so maybe you're not participating to the noise, right? You're saying, this thing that happened made me angry. Okay, but what's the proper way to discuss it? Because those are two separate conversations. You can be angry and have a, a very good, calm, logical discussion, which we're not having. And furthermore, I would encourage everybody to recognize it in others, right? So if somebody says something to you, right? You're at the kitchen table and you had some guests over. And now that conversation happens and they start wailing away. Recognize the emotion behind it. And that may, when you do that, you can have a little more empathy for their position and not really feel the need to respond. I think we have to start this whole thing with an emotional awareness and how we're acting on our emotions. And that's what I would uh, leave with everybody. I love it. Well, Errol, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule and sharing all your wisdom here on the podcast today. We truly did appreciate it. And I know I did myself. I appreciate it, Colin. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. You got it. Everyone, hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, as always, hit that subscribe button. Share this out with one person who you feel like could benefit from today's episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Until then, Colin Morgan signing off. And always remember to keep on grinding.